Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. Today, we're going to do podcast number 23. And we're going to cover a couple topics. We're going to do a little bit more of the Giro history and we're going to talk about wheels. Wheels and tires and rims and such. So let's start off with some Giro history. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, fascism and the Giro. A little bit about Octavio, Octavio Botecchia. And then we're going to move on from there and talk about Fausto Coppi. So I do a little bit of reading out of uh, this book um, by Colin O'Brien, The Beautiful Race, uh, about the story of the Giro d'Italia. And uh, it's quite a fascinating book. Um, so let's talk a little bit about fascism and the Giro. So Henri Descrange, Descrange began awarding a yellow jersey to the general classification leader of the Tour de France in 1919. It, helps, it helped fans and journalists to distinguish the overall front runner, while also serving to subtly reinforce the race's connection to his newspaper, Lotto, which had yellow newsprint. It wasn't until 1931 that the Gazetta followed suit, introducing the Maglia Rosa for the 19th edition of the race. And emblazoned on the front was the unmistakable symbol of Benito Mussolini's government, Fases. So what that is, is it's something that originates um, early in history. And it's an image um, of a bundle uh, bundle of birch rods uh, tied together to illustrate strength and unity and wrapped around an axe. Um, So this is kind of uh, um, one of those images that you see in a lot of things today. the symbol, the symbol still features uh, prominently worldwide in government icono- iconography today, not the least of which in the United States, where it is featured on currency and st- can still be seen behind the podium of the United States House of Representatives on the, and on the official seal of the United States Senate, as well as part of the Lincoln Memorial and within a frieze on the facade of the United States Supreme Court building, to name just a few examples. So I had never heard of the term before, and I had to I had to Google it and look up images, and I found it. And if you do the same, it's kind of interesting all the places that you find this imagery. So uh, moving on, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Ottavio Botecchia, and I think I talked about him in one of my early podcasts about his um, his story. Um, quite really interesting. So I'm going to read a little bit from the book here about about him. Um, Ottavio Botecchia was the first Italian to win the Tour de France. He was born in 1891 in San Martino del Col Umberto, a small town in Friuli, about 70 kilometers north of Venice. Botecchia, whose family were dirt poor, was the second youngest of nine children. He, he managed just one year of schooling before becoming an apprentice cobbler and eventually setting, settling into his life as a bricklayer, from which his fans would later derive his rather unglamorous nickname, Il Maratur del Frutti. By the time he became a professional cyclist, Botecchia had already endured a hard life. And as the crippling poverty of his childhood was followed by four years of fighting, fighting with the Bersaglieri in the First World War, during which time he contracted malaria, fell foul of mustard gas att- a mustard gas attack, and was captured by the Austrians twice, escaping both times, something that later earned him a medal for valor. Even at the height of his wealth and fame, he wore a tired, hungry exp- expression, with a parched skin and wizened, 
was in facial features of a much older man. And as rich as he became, he never lost the peasant's existential need for accumul to accumulate wealth. Speaking in the 1923 to the Gazetto correspondent at the Tour de France, Fabio Orlandini, he said, I don't race for sport or for cheers or for the crowd or for flowers from the beautiful women or even less for the glory. I race for the money to earn as much as I can and there I will never be enough and will never be enough suffering or fatigue to take my mind off this aim. I race for my family. They're poor and I'll do everything possible so that they don't have to live in misery. Orlandini noted afterwards that on the pronunciation of misery, Botecchia grimaced with disgust as if the word was about to make him vomit. After migrating to France to work for and discovering the opportunities available to a cyclist of his abilities, he turned pro in 1920, age 26, riding as an independent until his performance at the 1923 Giro attracted some admiring glances from his adopted homeland. And although he finished three quarters of an hour behind the pugnacious Giordango, the, he still managed fifth place, making him the highest ranked rider without a team. The showing brought him to the attention of Henry Pellissier, a dominant automoto team across the, the border. And by June, he'd been signed up to ride for Pellissier. And this year's eventual, uh, th that year's eventual winner. Not only that, but Botecchia also won the second stage from La Havre de Cherbourg, becoming the first Italian to pull on the Maya June. The following summer, he won a bunch of sprint, a bunch sprint on the first stage, again finishing in La Havre, and he held onto the jersey all the way to the end. The tour win of 1925 wasn't quite so straightforward early on, but he still won four stages and used his superior climbing ability to put the race to put the race behind his rivals once once the Grand Bouchon reached the Alps. He eventually arrived, arrived in Paris with a lead of 54 minutes over his teammate. Obviously, once he began winning in France, the authorities at home took note. But there was a problem. Botecchia, ever mindful of his roots, was, committed, was a committed socialist, an ardent anti-fascist. After allegedly teaching himself to read with copies of the Gazetta del Sport, he was regularly seen with anti-fascist pamphlets. And without ever openly criticizing Mussolini or his followers, it didn't take a detective to discover which side of the fence he stood on. So when he died mysteriously in 1927, plenty of people cried foul. The 32-year-old was found gravely injured on the side of the road, bloodied and apparently beaten, with a broken collarbone and cracked skull laid out in a vineyard some distance from his bicycle, which was undamaged and neatly propped up by a post near the road. Officially, he suffered heat stroke and crashed, but given the gruesomeness of the tour's daily grind and indeed the wretchedness of his life before becoming a cyclist, this seemed unlikely. Another theory was that he'd been assaulted by an angry farmer who had caught him stealing grapes. Years later, a local smallholder admitted to the crime, claiming he had hit him over the head with a stone. But even ignoring the fact that Botecchia was more than wealthy enough to buy his own food, common sense would suggest that it would be an odd time of year to pinch grapes, a fruit that is normally harvested in autumn. The third explanation 
is the most Machiavellian and, unsurprisingly, for a country enthralled in conspiracy theories, the most popular in Italy. It holds that Potecchia, unwilling to play the role of poster boy for a regime he despised, was murdered by Mussolini's black shirts. There's no evidence to prove this, of course, but there's nothing to disprove it either, and political killings were not uncommon at the time. Whatever the cause, after surviving hunger, hunger as a child, bullets and bombs as a young adult, and the perils of the Tour de France as a professional cyclist, Ottavio Botecchia died 12 late days later in a hospital, just a month after his brother died in a car crash. As a final ins insult, the state-run media lauded him as a true expression of the new Italian, while the black shirt stood as honor guard for his funeral. So that's kind of a sad story um, of Octav Octavio Botecchia. So we'll move on now and we'll talk a little bit about, um, talk some more about wheels, and then we'll get back and uh, finish up with a little bit more uh, uh, Giro d'Italia history. So uh, moving forward with wheels, since uh, we've learned now um, the beginnings of wheels, and more specifically bicycle wheels, um, from wooden spoked wheels to steel spoked wheels. Um, from iron tires to solid rubber to clincher wheels with pneumatic tires with separate inner tubes. The ride quality of bicycles greatly improved with these innovation inventions, and so the bicycle was able to be appreciated and discovered by everyone. The days of the bone crusher were over. So when we climb on our bicycles today, or wrench on one, we should be reminded, we should remind ourselves that that crappy department store bicycle rides like a dream compared to its predecessors. Uh, when we look at wheels of today, we see just how far we've come since 1869. While he, while he, we have had um, many sizes of wheels over the first 150 years of bicycles, some of the things haven't changed as much as we might think. Tires are still made of rubber and clincher tires and rims are still the standard. So today we have basically three types of wheel and tire combos. We have clinchers with a tube. We have tubeless, which is basically a clincher without a tube. And then we have tubular, which is also known as sew-ups. So I'd like to talk a little bit about tubulars. So they're in, they were invented by John Palmer in 1889. Uh, the, the first shop I worked at was very much a roadie shop. But don't get me wrong, these guys were really good mountain bikers too, but they were kind of roadies at heart. So I learned a lot of things at the Bicycle Re in Half Moon Bay, and the two most memorable that still stick with me today were road bikes with Campagnolo and tubulars. Uh, these guys owned Eddie Merckx and DeRosa bikes with Campagnolo group sets complete with Campy hubs and Campagnolo rims, which were tubulars. Um, Vittoria uh, tires mostly and sometimes Continental. Um, and yes, tubulars for everyday use. So let's take a step back here for, for just a second. For anyone who doesn't know exactly what a tubular tire is or a sew-up. So it's basically a tire with a tube sewn up inside of it. And it's meant to be glued to the rim. And yes, these require a special rim and a special glue and someone pretty darn special to glue the tire onto the rim. A 
proper tubular setup requires some skill, patience, and a and tire to be done correctly. Um, once while watching a coworker at the bicycle re applying uh, some glue to a tubular rim, as a young a young coworker asked, uh, "Why are you going so slowly with the brush um, while applying the glue to the rim?" The answer was simple. Wayne replied, "If you're in a hurry." to glue the tire on then it the tire will be in a hurry to roll off the rim when a tire rolls off a rim rolls off a rim you are suddenly riding on the aluminum rim sparks metal on pavement chaos ensues this is basically every team mechanic's nightmare um, i personally have had this happen only two times as a team mechanic and arguably only one was my fault so once a racer got caught in a rail car track and the tire got ripped off uh, after when he was able to uh, pull his uh, bicycle out of the slot, like kind of like playing slot cars with his bicycle. Um, the other time was at the Tour of Austria, a very wet race. Um, about a third of the tire came off the rim during the, a descent. Um, that one was my fault for not checking the tire well enough uh, during bike ma maintenance preceding uh, the races the days before. Um, so you can glue it on and do a really good job, but if you if it ride you ride on it in the rain enough, it's the the uh, glue is going to deteriorate and you're going to run into one of those kind of problems there. So all in all, I've glued uh, a couple thousand tubulars probably. So the failure uh, rate is uh, extremely low. Still, one is too many um, for my liking and for most mechanics' liking. Um, to properly, properly uh, glue a tubular takes three coats on the rim, on a brand new rim, and two coats on the base tape of the tire before a fourth coat on the rim right before installing the tire. So the prep is key. Stretching tires, especially Continentals, for a few weeks at least on some old rims will make it easier for the final install. The coats on the rim start super thin and should be cured, dried that is, for at least 24 hours before the next coat. Why do we do all this for tubulars, you might ask? And the answer is really quite simple. Ride quality, ride quality, and finally ride quality. And a bit more flat protection from pinch flats since uh, the tubular specific rims don't have hook beads like clinchers. So this is the reason tubeless is the new standard now, at least for mountain bikes and cyclocross bikes, although I prefer tubulars for cyclocross racing. Um, tubeless is great, but as far as cyclocross racing, I have seen people running tubeless and actually what they call burping a tire, where you hit something really hard and the, t the tire uh, shoots some air out of the side and then reseals itself, and you've probably lost uh, quite a few PSI. So... It's pretty common um, in cross racing. So for that reason, I stick, personally, I stick with tubulars. Um, like I said, the ride quality of tubulars is superior in every way to clinchers. However, they do have drawbacks. Uh, when you flat on tubulars, not only is the tire difficult to get off the rim, since it's glued on, hopefully you did a good job, your tire is now pretty much toast. Not to say you can't repair it, but it takes a bit more than a clincher does to repair, repair the flat. So repairing a, flatter, a flatted tubular requires removing the tire from the rim, uh, find the spot on the tire where the tube has pinched a hole in it, sometimes easy, sometimes not. 
pull back the base tape covering the stitching. And yes, tubulars are also known as sew-ups, like I said, for a reason, because they are sewn up. The tube is sewn up inside the rim. So, and then the next step would be to cut the stitching, pull the tube out, the section with the hole in the, in the tube, not the entire tube, just the one section where you found the hole, hopefully. Uh, patch the tube like you would patch any normal tube. Sew it back up. Re-glue the base tape. Re-glue the tire to the rim. And hope that the patch holds. And yes, I've done this a few times with success and a few times without. Uh, which led me to ride on clinchers uh, later in life and get rid of uh, tubulars for everyday use. Um, once I flatted on a brand new Continental Sprinter on its first ride. Um, also, you've got to carry a spare, a spare tire with you in addition to the fact that if you can remove the flatted tubular, you'll have to remember the tire you replace it with won't be glued to the rim. Cornering at speed for the remainder of your ride becomes an adventure. So that's kind of the tubular rundown. You don't see them too much anymore. The, the pros race on tubulars um, in the tour and, and such, time trials, and on the track they still ride tubulars. But uh, most people are running clinchers uh, with a tube and uh, tubeless tires, uh, like I said, for especially for mountain biking and uh, cross riding and gravel riding, gravel racing tubeless is kind of the way to go. So um, in our next episode, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, clinchers and tubeless, and then we'll, we'll kind of talk more about wheel sizes and how they've changed over the years, uh, which have changed quite a bit, um, especially over the last 10 years or so. So I'd like to kind of pivot back to the Giro a little bit, and we'll finish up with um, a little bit about uh, Bartali and Kopi. Um, kind of a really interesting, um, interesting couple of guys, a uh, couple of Italian uh, racers, uh, very famous, obviously. Um, a lot of people, Fausto Coppi is their favorite, and for reasons you will discover in the story, um, why people love him so much. Um, so let's uh, do a little reading out of The Beautiful Race by Colin O'Brien. Um, it would be impossible to tell the story of the Giro of cycling or Italian sport in general without discussing perhaps its greatest rivalry. Gino Bartali and Fausto Coppi were more than just two of the most exceptional athletes ever to ride a bike. They symbolize and still symbolize the duality of mid-century Italy and the change that was going on across the country at the time, the old and the new, pre and post-war, the peasantry of a fading rural identity and the promise of the country's remarkable economic miracle in the 1950s. Bartali stood for more rural and reserved old Italy and Kopi for the modern nation that struggled to find itself in the ashes of fascism. Bartali, also known as Alumo de Ferro, the Iron Man, Kopi was crystal, suffering 13 different broken bone breakages in a career that was all too often interrupted by injury. Bartali was a favorite of the Pope and a hero to Italy's persecuted Jews. Copi, the Campanissimo, champion of champions, was more urban. One often explosive and always talkative, the other mostly pensive and always tacturn. Bartali devout, Copi divorced. 
Bartali belonged to tradition and the faith in, of the church. They used to say he prayed while he rode and that the saints sometimes offered him favors when the odds were against him. Kopi, meanwhile, was the living embodiment of post-war Italy, secular, ambitious, elegant, and effortlessly cool in finely tailored suits and sunglasses. He believed in himself before anything else and had no time to court the favors of guardian angels. Almost every aspect of the two men's lives were in stark contrast and resulting and the resulting dynamic enchanted the nation and lit up the cycling world. Bartoli worked with the partisans and would live to the ripe old age of 85, leaving behind Adriana, his wife of 60 years. Copi was conscripted into the Italian army and spent two years as a prisoner of war. There was a scandal of a failed marriage, an illicit relationship, and the tragedy of his death. A full four decades before his arrival, just age 40. There were some similarities too, one of them miserable, to which we'll return to in due course. Gina was born on 18th of July, 1914, in an unremarkable corner house on the Via Cristiana in Point, Point uh, Emma on the outskirts of Florence. Fittingly for a boy born to the anniversary of the Catholic Church's declaration of papal infallibility, his devout upbringing, upbringing was profoundly influential, although there was something innate about his talent. Nature, nurture played a huge part in his becoming one of the greatest cyclists of all time, one of the biggest personalities, and one of the biggest personalities in Italian sport. Giulia and Torelli Bartali were typically typical of Tuscany's peasant class at the time. Torello was a bricklayer by trade, with Giulia worked long hours in the fields before returning home to a side job embroidering lacework. Legend has it that she gave birth to Gino just after arriving home from a long journey on foot to a, to a covenant in the countryside to inquire about a housekeeping position. The Bartalis worked hard for their kids. Gino had two sisters, Anita and Natalina, and a younger brother, Giulio, and expected that they would respond in kind. In kind. Gino would later recall that he and his brother helped the women of the house with embroidery work for as long as he could remember. And it was apparently something in the future Giro Winner's excellent that he was excellent at. But when the boy reached 10, his father felt that it was time for him to find work of his own. So he was sent to earn his keep with some local farmers collecting leaves for the raffia palm the once upon a time there used to be used to make ties for grapevines. Nowadays, you're more likely to find it wrapped into a decorative bottoms on cheap round rotund bottles of local table wine. It was boring work for a kid without but with boundless energy, but it was also a means to an end for the young Gino. Local school taught him only taught him only until the age of 10. So he had to transport to get to Florence to compete, complete his studies. And that meant buying a bicycle, the object of desire for every right-thinking boy the length and breadth of the peninsula. What had started out as an object of torture for the likes of Louis Ghana and Constantine Giordango, and as a hellish way to put food on the table for the countless other less talented and now forgotten riders of the early Giro, had by the 1920s become a symbol of freedom and speed and speed to Ragazzini, young Italian boys and girls everywhere. 
It would be some time before he'd see a proper racing bike, of course, but the rusty and rudimentary old workhorse of the local laborers had long fascinated the young Gino, and when his, when his own arrived, bought with the help of some donations from family following, from the family following his first communion, it set in motion a string of events that would change the boy and bicycle racing forever. And with that, I would like to bring this podcast to an end. And next time we will cover a little bit more about Kopi and Bartali, which is really a fascinating story. And we'll talk a little bit more about wheels. So till next time, be safe out there.